to episode one of our new podcast series, Bridging the Gaps, which is co-produced by FASTA, the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability, and EHFF, the European Health Futures Forum. I'm Sean O'Conline, and I'm Caroline White. In this series, we'll be hearing from a range of guests covering diverse topics, including how best to measure well-being, the politics of land, wealth distribution, blame, shame and compassion, and the role of digital technology in society, all in the context of a biosphere which is critically ill and in need of urgent care. We're starting off the series with some reflections and suggestions that we're hoping will provide a bit of grounding for the future episodes. This is a bumper episode, and it's been adapted from recordings made at a recent event hosted by FASTA in Dublin, entitled Living Well in the Face of Climate and Ecological Crises. The event explored how people who are involved in trying to improve our situation at this very fraught time in human history can best preserve their own mental health and avoid burning out and inadvertently undermining the very things they're trying to achieve. First, we'll be hearing from psychologist and FASTA trustee, John Sharry. He'll be interviewing our FASTA administrator, Morag Friel, and Morag's daughter, Leontine Friel Darrell, who is very active in the Extinction Rebellion movement. Then later on, we'll hear from Mark Garavan, also a FASTA trustee and a lecturer in sociology. He'll be interviewing Teresa O'Donoghue, who is very active in numerous environmental and social causes and is currently the People Before Profit candidate for Clare in the coming general election in Ireland, and journalist and climate campaigner John Gibbons. So here's John Sherry starting the conversation off. Welcome to everybody to this morning, where we are trying to offer a slightly different type of conversation about some of all the issues we're facing. My background is in mental health. That, that's my, what I've been doing for my whole life. And mental health is about helping people to live well in the face of whatever difficulties they're in. And I've always worked with people in very adverse circumstances for a whole variety of things, whether there's family difficulties or breakdown or mental health difficulties. And always my focus has been people to live the best way they can, whatever the circumstances uh, they're, they're living in. Much mental illness is caused by a lack of acceptance of reality. In fact, there's a great uh, quote by the psychologist who had his own mental health problems, I might add. You might have seen him on The Late Late Show, uh, Ronnie Lang. He was a drunk on The Late Late Show. Uh, which is a very famous thing to do, isn't it? <laughs> and Gay Byrne was not happy about it. But he had a great quote. He says, the only pain we can avoid in life is the pain caused trying to avoid pain. You have to accept the reality of your, of your circumstances. That's the importance of positive mental health. And the focus of this conversation is how do we live well in the face of the reality, the very difficult reality of ecological and environmental crisis that we're facing into, uh, uh, collapsing ecosystems and the, all the challenges for society. As you can see, lots of people are flying into unreality and electing unreal fantasy politicians who give unreal explanations for the problems uh, we're facing. The aim of FASTA as an organization has been to identify what the characteristics of a truly sustainable society are. Uh, whether this is economic, cultural, or environmental factors. And they take a holistic view, looking at the whole society, the whole of, uh, of communities. And probably the most important unit of society is the individual. And, and the question today for me is, is what sustains an individual? What's a sustainable life for an individual in their families and in their communities? So a big question for me as a mental health professional, as a psychologist, is what truly are the characteristics of an individual who can thrive and live well in the face of all the crises we're facing? So that's the important question, because I guess you probably all, for those of you working, and most of you are all 
from the environmental movement and here. We don't have any people from Fine Gael here, I imagine. <laughs> I should mention a few others, shouldn't I? I shouldn't single them out. But anyway, the general, the mainstream, uh, if you like. So if you're in the environmental movement or in the, uh, looking at these from a different perspective, this does take a, its toll on your own mental health, which is often not talked about. I see this all the time. People are, they might go with great passion uh, when they first discover the reality of, the, uh, of what's happening and they, they go into a great drive, we're going to change everything. And then they usually hit a brick wall where things don't change and they suffer burnout and they might fall into despair and so forth. And they're very normal sets of emotions to occur. So it's just to acknowledge that we need to attend and support people who are experiencing those, uh, those ups and downs. Because above all, because what, what happens when that occurs to people, they often pull back or give up or become demotivated. Uh, and what we need most of all uh, in these circumstances, people to stay motivated, to stay passionately involved, to stay in, uh, as activists in the fight, so to speak, for a better world. So partly where I want to help people is to help people to understand what they're going through and help them be sustained in whatever they're doing and to be supported in there. So that's my passion, uh, try to help people with. And the other challenge I think in the environmental movement, which I think is more of a tragedy, is quite often when there's stresses, what they tend to do, each organization who are campaigning for a better world, is they, is they stop fighting for a better world and they start fighting each other. Uh, have you noticed that? <laughs> they start to fall apart. They start criticizing each other. So do we, one of them, they think, I have the perfect message. You have to be, uh, you have to be completely vegan or, or you're a complete hypocrite. Or you have to be completely out campaigning and give up flying forever or you're a complete hypocrite. So there's these fracture that occurs when actually the reality is everything is needed at all levels all change. Everyone needs to be supported in what they do in this challenge. So another part of mine is try to help people hold together. Don't fight your own guy who's on your side. <laughs> there's plenty of people out there who need your attention and need your vitriol and need your, your resistance if you like too. So often I would like to help organizations learn to support one another and learn to stay together and hold together. So they're, they're the two main questions that, uh, for me personally, uh, that would motivate me to be involved in setting up an event like this today. And I'm delighted today that we have, the way we try to approach it, we, there are no answers to this, but we're to give space and to listen to some people who've been involved in the environmental movement for some time and looking at how they have, have managed that and from a personal and community and family perspective. So we're delighted to have a number of great people here the first thing we're going to start with is we're going to have an interview with Morag Friel and Leontine Friel Darrell. And so I'll invite Morag and Leontine to join me on the stage. What I'm going to do is just start by inviting, if I just address my, my two uh, interviewees, like I think what's really interesting to have you both here today and what really struck me as very interesting is that you're, you're from the same family, a mother and daughter, and certainly as a parent myself, how do I bring up my own children in the face of what we're dealing with in the future? And how do I talk to them about this? And how to prepare them for this? And so I think that's a very important question. A lot of us, when we're in families, and I'd be interested to start with you, Leontine, and, and if you could tell me a little bit for you, because I know your, your, your mom and dad were very much involved in the environmental movement and the eco-village, but what was that like for you growing up as a child? If we could take you back to the beginning, so to speak. Um, I think I'm, I'm a bit of a protest baby. I'm feel like I was brought to quite a few when I was younger and I, one of my earliest memories is actually at a FASTA conference back in, I don't even know which conference it was, I just remember helping with the name tags as a child. But it was very much like climate change is a word that I've known for a very, very long time. Um, like it's always been there, peak oil, climate change, carbon, fossil fuels, um, food security, which is my dad's main focus, mm -hmm. has always been very, very, like the language that has always been around. But I don't think I ever got it. 
it was always very much my parents thing mm -hmm. and you know being involved in fast I think there was definitely that boundary of I was a child and I couldn't get into the intellectual side of climate breakdown because mm -hmm. I had no idea what was going on and so I think you know living in eco village and living with parents who were very involved in FASTA there was that there was that almost inaccessibility to it of not being able to be like very very involved because I just didn't understand the yes. intellectual side of climate change as, as a child it was there but you still you still had a childhood yeah exactly it wasn't it wasn't like this all-consuming thing like I knew it was but I was very much like I guess I grew up with the very like you have to recycle and don't use plastic and flying is bad but we do it anyway sometimes and Canada's yeah, anyway. there, there's a sort of inconsistency people every yeah, people struggle in their life uh, about uh, about well, flying is bad but we, we do it sometimes and yeah so and it's it was very much like okay we try to reduce our waste we try to recycle mm. we compost we try and eat local food we try and buy food that doesn't have plastic on it but those were the things that I thought like were saving us like okay. I was still in that headspace of okay. like this is we're, we're doing the right thing yeah, and then growing up in Eco Village, I was surrounded by people who were all very much in that same headspace. But again, it was that, like, I was still a child mm -hmm. and I didn't fully understand, mm -hmm. which I think is probably a good thing overall. I'm going to bring in your mom, Morag, if you want to be interested to hear your own experience of being an environmental activist and then becoming a parent. And, and, and I know you made a very conscious decision around that in thinking all that through and probably way ahead of a lot of people in their when so I've, I've been involved I suppose in environmentalist light if you like for a very very long time by light I mean I, I didn't sort of become aware of FASTA's you know thinking till 2007 when I started working for FASTA but before that I you know like Leontine you know as an adult I had these ideas like I was involved with a group trying to set up a co-housing community in Dublin I was involved with the Dublin Food Co-op Bruce and I started an organization called Dublin Food Growing, which was aiming at getting, you know, at food security for people in the cities. So, you know, I was conscious and active, but still either denying or not fully aware of the implications of what was coming. But even I remember Bruce and I lived in Canada, he's Canadian, and I we we got married and we were married in Canada. We were seven years married before Leontine was born. And for a long time, I had thought that we wouldn't have children. I, I knew overpopulation was a big issue for me or for, you know, for us in that decision and consumption. And so for a long time, we, we didn't have a child. And then, like I said, so many humans, the heart wins out in the end or the, the, the biological imperative snuck up on me. And uh, in my mid thirties, I, I failed to hold the line and I said, <laughs> And I said, Bruce, you, you know, then you know the way, you know, and we talked it through and and like everything we do, it, we talk and think a lot. And uh, and then we talk again, then we think again, and then, and then we talk again. And in the that end, sounds like a faster meeting. it sounds like life as fast a meeting. Oh, Welcome dear. The yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of thinking and talking. But uh, yeah, so so we, it was a conscious decision then to go. Oh, well, our personal, you know, my personal needs and desires trump the world. Sorry. And for the same reason, I still fly back to Canada on a, you know, on a yearly basis because our family is there, you know, and it's a heart thing again. And to not see our family in Canada most of the year is heartbreaking sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so I'm not, not attempting to justify myself, but that is as it is. So Leontine came into our life and so changed, you know, as Naomi Klein said, that changed everything. <clears throat> and so there was a whole other aspect then to our, mm -hmm. I suppose, the imperative to to work to try and help to deal with the climate and environmental crises. Can, can you say a little bit more about how that being becoming a parent changed everything, in, in, particularly in your work as an activist mm -hmm. and, and awareness of environmental issues? Well, it brings the political to the personal, mm. you know, because I think it's there's that thing where you have the cognitive dissonance or whatever it is that compartmentalizes issues in your life. And so I think when you have a child, you're suddenly looking mm. at this other human being 
and you're saying, oh my God, that's the most beautiful baby there ever was born and the cleverest. But you do see now, like, you know, you're thinking more generations ahead. You're thinking, oh, what kind of world am I going to leave this little being? And that made it, it became, I suppose I panicked more. <laughs> but even then, it was still very much in my head. You know, it's far in the future. We're working hard to avoid it. Uh, FASTA soon taught me that hope was for fools and being a tremendously doomer organization. Not everyone in FASTA is a doomer, but a lot of us are. And uh, so that, so uh, th those two things, I hold them equally. I have no hope for the future, but yet we ha I have to try. I have to do my best and support this person and, and do the work I do because mm -hmm. it's the right thing to do. And it is the only thing to do mm -hmm. because what else is there to lie down in a heap? Mm -hmm. And I'm just not going to do that. I'm mm -hmm. a bit of a fighter. Tell me a little bit about that balance is a very key one isn't oh, it about a, very a balance of you could fall into despair but then you've hope yeah. and you're committed to the people around you you've got your your children your family your mm -hmm. community and not even not even just to mention yourself that you want to, to mm -hmm. live for yeah it's a very tenuous very tenuous line sometimes or and i fall into despair i have actually suffered from depression all my life so i'm used to so in a way this is nothing new so it's actually kind of helpful um i just get up every morning and i put one foot in front of the other mm. and i keep doing the thing mm. and i just see i have a fair bit of humor a lot of dark humor um but i am a fighter and i believe i think i try and have integrity in as much as i can and just say i'm not going to abandon everybody mm. you know myself my family my wider community the larger community i'm not going to abandon them so just keep on keeping on and can you tell me a little bit about the eco-village, how that's mm -hmm. benefited both of you or your, mm -hmm. both your experience of that? Maybe we, we start with Leontine about that. Yeah, um, like I guess, like I said, it's very much living a sustainable life mm -hmm. has just kind of been my life. Like I rebelled in my teenage years by going to pennies. Okay. Heartbroken. <laughs> I, I got so much, I got in a lot of trouble for coming home with clothes from pennies. A lot of disappointment. I'm not angry, I'm disappointed for you for going to pennies. Yeah, that, that was kind of my rebellion. It was well, that's wanting not too bad that. a rebellion compared to the ones I I've was seen. a very tame teenager. <laughs> you didn't see what you came back with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was very much like I rebelled from this life that I had of, mm. of sustainability, of climate consciousness, of environmentally conscious life by going towards the mainstream and wanting to just be a normal mm -hmm. teenager mm -hmm. for once. And then I realized that that's boring and I didn't want to do that anymore. But yeah, so growing in the village, like I have a huge support network. Like I've grown up with people and now that I'm much more conscious of the issues we're facing, mm -hmm. I already have this huge network of people mm. who get it. Like right. I live surrounded by people who understand okay. exactly what I'm going through. And what's that like to live surrounded by people who understand? It's it's one of the best parts of my life in this way is mm. having that support mm -hmm. in the community. This community is... We very much went with the uh, it takes a village to raise a child. I was very much raised by so many people in the village. Okay. They've had so many influences on my life through like teaching me Irish and through just kind of like having friendships with all these adults in my life who supported me through my teenage years and through learning about all of this stuff. Right. It's not having to explain and justify how I feel constantly. Mm. Having people just get it automatically mm. and understand where I'm at mm. has been so beneficial. And can you say more like about what it was like for you as a parent and a, and a family raising Leontine in the eco-village? As Angie said, it was, a, it was a conscious decision because we knew there would only be one child. That was very clear once Leontine was born. I thought, well, you know, when you hit perfection, why go again? Right? That was my motto um, in a sarcastic tone. But um, <laughs> it was... Um, <laughs> so there was a conscious decision to move to an intentional community for the very reason that 
um, there would be mm. a lot of influence and a lot of sociability mm. and the understanding. And so I think for Lane Jean, the hard thing was actually in the eco-village for her was there weren't many people of her age like that mm. she connected with um, and you know, children of her age. So, so I did feel slightly guilty about that because there was a lot of adult influence, but maybe not so many. Whereas now there are a lot of kids in the mm. eco-village, but of, of her age bracket, there wasn't. Mm -hmm. So that was a little hard. But yeah, so like that, it was just to be with people. Mm -hmm. And I won't say like-minded because as we all know, once we're in, in the community together, there's lots of different opinions. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was, as Lainey said, people who got it, the baseline, we were at least at a base together and people mm -hmm. supported, like we don't have a car and living in a rural area, that was a conscious decision mm -hmm. um, to balance the, the once a year flying. Um, and so we needed the support of people physically, mm -hmm. like in that way. And there's, there's huge support within our community for everything, like, you know, social, but mm -hmm. physical, and it's a really sharing, caring community. I'm just going to change direction a little bit and talk a little bit about, because Legatine, you're also a young activist, or being raised in the eco-village and then rebelling by going to pennies. <laughs> but then you, you made a decision to get more involved in a very direct way. Can you tell a little bit about your journey to becoming a young activist? Yeah, well, it started, um, really started with the abortion rights campaign with repeal. Mm -hmm. So I was in rural Ireland, rural Tipperary, very much an interesting place to canvas about abortion. So it, it was a very in the deep end start. Mm -hmm. um, so I, yeah, so I got involved with Together for Yes in Tipperary. Um, I was originally like, oh, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna be like social media. I'll do behind the scenes. I'll support people. And then I went for one canvas and then canvassed every single day until the referendum. Like I, I suddenly was like, oh, this is something I'm actually good at. This is something I enjoy. It sparked a, a real kind of fire in yeah. of just like I want to make change. I want to see change happen. And this is how I can do it. And I realized that I was actually influencing people and having these conversations. It, there was this feeling of empowerment of like, I'm actually changing minds. And so when repeal, when we won the repeal campaign, which was the most incredible feeling, I think I cried for like three days straight. I was suddenly, after I recovered from it, a bit of the burnout, there was this kind of gap in my life of, well, what do I do now? Like, what can I change now? Like, I need to be doing things. I need to be saving the world in some way. So I went to Canada for um, a few months just to do some traveling, and then I came home, and I was going to go to Toronto. That was my idea. I was going to move to Toronto. I was going to start afresh. I was going to be this new person, and then I found Extinction Rebellion, and everything changed. Okay. <laughs> So tell me how everything changed being involved in Extinction Rebellion. Well, so one of my neighbours in the Eco-Village is one of the founders of Extinction Rebellion Ireland. Mm -hmm. um, and he gave a talk called Heading for Extinction and What to Do About It. Mm -hmm. So it's basically just the science laid out in front of you how screwed we really are. Like just really just brutal, brutally honest science mm -hmm. for about an hour. And then about another hour of this is what you can do. This is civil disobedience. This is direct action. This is activism. This is why we do what we do. This is the history of science and the data behind what we're doing. Um, and I just realized that there was this turning point where I was just sitting in the audience and I was crying. Like I was so overwhelmed by this grief and fear. And I went, actually went to talk with my dad and I kind of turned to him and he just goes, now you, now you understand how I've been feeling for the last 10 years. Now you get where, where, how I feel every day. And so there was that realization that at least I don't have to persuade my parents to yes. join me in this. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just sitting there and my parents are finally glad that I've caught up. But yeah, so it was very much this turning point of like, oh my God, I have to do something. And this this is what I need to do. This is what I need to be doing with my life. And so I decided to stay in Ireland and I got really, really involved in the Extinction Rebellion. And that's been my entire year pretty much. And, uh, and, and that's a big task to take on because like yeah. you had the, as you said, it was a very empowering experience with the, the repeal uh, mm -hmm. and changing minds. Mm -hmm. But this is a bigger, a much bigger, yeah. harder the task. Thing, how's that going? Because as you say, you talked about the whole process of 
fighting and, bur and burnout. How, yeah. How do you... Well, for repeal, there was a deadline. That was the big difference is that there was mm. the referendum on a certain date mm. working towards that date. And I knew I just had to get to that day. So it was very much a like all out, just to get to that day. Mm. And then afterwards I recovered. Mm -hmm. This is a very, there is no deadline of, well, there is lots of deadlines, mm. but I'm trying not to think about them too much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there is, there is this like, there is no like one day where we're going to vote on a thing and it's going to save the world. It's going to be just one thing after the other that we have to keep, keep on going, keep on going. Mm. And I will admit that balance is not a skill that I've mastered yet. Mm -hmm. It's like, I'm, I just work really hard and then I burn out and then I work really hard and then I burn out. And it's just, I haven't. So you have this up uh, high energy burnout, recover, mm -hmm. and then and get back of, in again. And lots of small burnout. Like I, so I'm living part-time in Dublin, part-time with mm -hmm. my parents still in Clock Jordan. And I come home and I just completely, collapse like I'm half the time I come home and I'm just in mm -hmm. bed for like two days mm -hmm. just trying to recover from the rest of the week mm -hmm. there's the two extremes and there is that fine line of hope and despair mm -hmm. and, and trying to find that balance it's all how do you pick yourself up again that's a very good question I think it's just I'm I don't feel like I have a choice in not continuing mm -hmm. like mom was saying we owe I feel like I almost owe it to the people around me mm -hmm. I'm not going to give up in any way and I the fight is still so prevalent relevant sorry so important or so Thank out you. there yeah. yeah and I'm also incredibly inspired by the people around me like working with Extinction Rebellion there is a huge focus on looking after the people around you and like I wouldn't have gotten through this year without all the people in XR so they, they have me. awareness of the importance of looking after people oh absolutely okay. yeah, which is great isn't it see yeah. some of them here yeah <laughs> Yeah, no, and that, that, is, that is integral to this fight is mm. that it's a long fight. This is not a race, it's a marathon, and mm -hmm. it's a very, very long marathon, mm. and we're going to keep ha having to keep going for as long as we possibly can. Mm. And I think we all need to improve that skill of balance. It is a, is a skill that we all need to get better at practicing because otherwise we're not going to make it. We're not going to continue this fight long enough. And can I bring you in there more as a parent of a young, young adult trying to support them in this, and what's that been like for you? It, it adds a whole other dimension for sure, as I said earlier, about changing everything because, you know, inside myself, I struggle um, and I've been struggling with this for a long time. And now there's this, I remember a quote I read somewhere, like when you have a child, it's to wear your heart outside your body for the rest of your life. You know, it's, mm. it, so when I see Leontine struggling and suffering, um, you know, there's a huge myriad of emotions among which is guilt, um, you know, that we have created a world that this for young people and also, you know, fear, also love and the need to support. And then the helicopter lawnmower mammy who who wants to rush ahead and, and clear everything out of the way and, and make sure it's all OK. Um, and that's very strong. The force is strong in this one. <clears throat> and so I have to, you know, so there's obviously that's a parenting so you, you issue. Want, you almost want to protect, is it? Well, I'd like it? to take that, you know, I'd like, I'll take it on, I'll take it on, you know, you be better, you be better, um, you know, feel better. So, you know, I'd rather carry it, which is very selfish. There's often like this thing of you trying to remove all the obstacles I could possibly face before I have to face them. Yeah. And so it's gotten to a point where I've started sending her helicopter emojis when she's yeah, saying yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, no. Okay. I'm on it's like a warning, you're like, you're yeah. doing it again. You, I'm, can, yeah. you can calm down. I'm and still that, on the parenting journey here, yeah. the, 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 the trying to stop being a parent and being something else but it is hard but particularly in this case it's not like it's not normal like it's not normal that Leontine should be you know going and doing all the XR stuff with her her colleagues and then you know working herself and then coming home and having this awful letdown and collapse and exhaustion and then 
and I, that's not right, you know. So you say it's not normal, you'd prefer that there was a, it was a different world. Uh, that's what I mean, sorry, it's yeah, not yeah, normal. Yeah, I mean, yeah. but this is the new normal, sorry. It is normal now, but, you know, it shouldn't be normal. And so for me, there's this element of, you know, so, so I kind of steal myself. Lainting comes home, there's inevitable sort of few days, day or two, and then I kind of steal myself. And then what's really good is her, with Bruce, her dad, we, we're very good at, you know, as a family, we operate pretty well together. We call ourselves the BML Collective, and we do kind of sit down, spend a lot of time together on the couch talking things through at the dinner table and mm. allowing I suppose allowing each other to say what we need to say in Lane mm. to feel as she feels and yet offer maybe the perspective mm. of our lifetime of activity that says mm. this is this is normal like the, the, the infighting problems that arise the fact that you're not you know making the progress you thought you would hopefully this action would have led to better legislation and, and and it's not happening and that's all you know that is all natural unfortunately and and so you do have to as she said it's a marathon not a race so it's a kind of like a regen we do the, you know there's a regen at home together yeah they're absolutely like like you were asking earlier i get through because i come home and i do collapse but i collapse in a in a, i guess a more healthy way of actually just venting and actually talking about why i'm feeling so down in that moment and having a space where that's okay to talk about and the people I'm talking about it with my parents have been going through this exact same thing for 10 years and so they know how hard it is to keep going and so they understand that that there is, they've just created the space for me that it is very much I come home and I'm able to just be down and be upset about all the things I'm facing and and it's, it's okay to just so that understanding is really really helpful can I ask you, Elaine Teen, as well, like what would you, what other advice would you give parents who are like your mom and like all the other parents here wondering how to help children and young people that they know or their own children to manage with the crisis we're facing? And... I guess to educate yourself, to mm -hmm. understand exactly why your child mm -hmm. is so scared and so upset and so depressed and so grief stricken, like yeah. under, to understand where they're at. To educate yourself about the issues. Exactly, educate yourself about, about the science so that you know. Parents, most parents, your parents are unusual, uh, <laughs> are quite behind on that, aren't they, in terms of they, uh, their understanding of the science? Yeah, and absolutely. Problems. And I, I, every now and again, I just register how privileged I am to have that space of the adults in my life are able to still be Mm -hmm. the grown-ups in my life and mm -hmm. I'm not I don't feel like I have to educate them mm -hmm. and we're it's a journey together and we're facing mm -hmm. this together rather than me desperately trying to get mm -hmm. the people who are supposed to be I guess still looking after me in some ways mm -hmm. as my parents to understand something and trying to educate them mm -hmm. there is like this mutual kind of understanding and that is a huge privilege mm -hmm. that I have over so many people mm -hmm. but I guess yeah the best advice would be to educate yourself so you can really mm -hmm. understand the situation understand why people are why if people are feeling this way so you can really come at it with empathy and then also just to create a space where it's okay to be not okay mm -hmm. we are in a really awful situation this is it's very terrifying and it's you can't expect to be positive all the time there is going to be the negative and like my parents have created this space for me where it's okay to be just so depressed and so sad and, and scared and the fact that I don't have to fight through it and I'm able to just let those emotions happen because parents beneficial. would want to fix that right? exactly. yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, to stop that because it's it's often very distressing for them to mm. see yeah. the children in that mm. but but you think it's important to allow that absolutely in a supportive way to, yeah. to happen so just allow that space for what needs to happen anything else you would other message now that you have the audience of all the parents of the world oh. <laughs> what else would you think they should oh, know that's... they often ask me how they should respond to some of these things what else would you you've made some very good points about inform themselves be very supportive and understanding join your kids on the streets just join them mm. yeah, yeah don't yeah. expect us to do yeah. all the work yeah. 
We're like no offense, but your generation fucked this up yeah. for us. Yeah, no offense taken. <laughs> we didn't. We that. didn't. We didn't <laughs> cause this. Yeah. Well brought up, young. <laughs> Those guys did, did it, didn't they? Yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah. Boomers, we. Yeah. It's great that you're in, like young people that we're trying to be. Mm-hmm. You know, people have said the work that all of us doing is inspiring, and that's great. But take that inspiration and do the work too. Don't leave it all on our shoulders to fix the world that you created. Thank you very much. On that note, I'm going to take a little pause. uh, Thank you so much for sharing. Would you give me a little round of applause? (laughs) Um, That was John Charry interviewing Morag Friel of Asta and the Antine Friel Darrell of Extinction Rebellion during the December the 7th event, Living Well in the Face of Climate and Ecological Crises. Next, we're going to hear from Mark Garavan, who'll be asking Teresa O'Donoghue and John Gibbons for their perspectives on taking care of one's mental health while you're at the front line of environmental activism. Good morning or good afternoon, everyone. I think we just slipped into the afternoon. Mark Garvin is my name. Uh, I'm one of the FASTA trustees and I've been involved in FASTA for quite a while as well. I'm going to cut to the chase because I think we can just get straight to it and use our half hour as efficiently as possible. You want to say two sentences about each other just to orientate who you are? My name is Teresa Donoghue. I grew up in Dublin. I now live in Clare. I have five kids and I have been aware of the predicament for the last 12 years and acting ever since. Uh, John Gibbons, I grew up in Kilkenny. I've lived in Dublin, I guess, all my adult life. I'm a journalist by background. I've been a business owner for the last 20-something years and uh, was high on the hog until all this stuff sent me crashing down again. So I spent the last number of years involved kind of back in journalism and a little bit of activism as well, uh, trying to fumble my way through it like I think everybody else in this room. You're beautifully colour-coordinated as well. Thank you for noticing. I think we should note that. Very, very important. So I think we listened, the first conversation was really interesting uh, and a lot of interesting stuff came up. So you guys have a lot of combined experience together. So maybe we just tap straight into it. I'm just wondering, firstly, your motivation, what, what actually keeps you going in the middle of all of this, if that's not too negative a question, but just it's interesting for people to hear your own motivations at this point. Well, mine would be the kids and the fact that I have five kids and we're leaving this planet to them. Um, and that keeps me motivated I think once you understand what's going on, you have to be motivated to keep going. Otherwise, inaction is not an option. You know, so I, I think I'm motivated with that. <clears throat> I feel like an imposter, first of all. I, I'm not a proper environmentalist. I, I never was, probably never will be. If you'd said to me 15, 16 years ago that I'd be sitting here and this morning in this room for this type of a group, I would have thought you were crazy. And I'd also thought people who do this kind of thing were crazy. So that's been a bit of a revelation. So I think, like Teresa, I guess I have a stake in the future. I've got uh, two teenage kids now and, you know, trying to grapple with the kind of world that, well, that we're all going to get stuck with and specifically the next generation. And what do you do about that? You know, how do you live in some way? How do you reconcile what you know with your own values in, in any shape or form? And I think we all do it to a lesser or greater extent quite badly. And I think I certainly do. I kind of feel, you know, this great disconnect between what I know and how I live and so on. But I think that's probably, I don't think I'm alone in that. 
So just to pursue that, when you when you think of the future and the future through the eyes of your children, mm. that's a dark place as you see it, is it? Do you see that as quite negative? Hell yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll say I stumbled into this about 16 years ago, around about the time my first child was born. And I guess it was the first time I really thought in terms of, you know, looking forward 30, 40 years. Mm. And when you pay attention, it's just, oh my God, right? So I've been in a state of kind of shock ever since, really, to be honest. And then personally, that shock kind of I mediated into anger, I think, initially, mm. uh, and then used journalism as a sort of a, a blunt instrument with which to beat all the people that I was angry towards, all the institutions, all the failures in society. So I really used <coughs> the media or my media platform to just kind of rage against the dying of the light. And I think you can only do that for so long. And I kind of totally burned out on that for two or three years, uh, maybe a little bit more. And then that's that's kind of brings me back eight to ten years ago. Then you have to find an equilibrium. Mm. Because if I hadn't found an equilibrium at that time, I wouldn't be here today. I'm pretty sure about that. So you have to find a way to pace yourself to actually just go at it in a way that you can continue to be, you continue to function, you continue to actually get out of it. That's the challenge, I think, for any of us who've kind of got our heads around this. Okay, I think we'll come back to that in a moment, how you did that, because I think that'd be interesting for people, how you find that equilibrium. But the same question, I mean, when you see the future through the eyes of your children, is it, is it a very dark, forbidding kind of prospect that you see? I mean, I got involved with the Transition Towns movement because I like the vision that we could change things and we could build more local economies and mm. more supports for the future. So I was all delighted with the whole idea of revisioning the future and my children being involved in that vision. I can say that I'm, I've done my best since to prepare them for a life with less, whereas my first two children would have had holidays a couple of times a year. And I had, you know, I had the, I would be like you. I didn't, I wouldn't have seen myself here and I wouldn't be classified as an environmentalist, but I am now. So preparing them for a life that is not what they were brought up with initially mm. and now what their friends are being brought up with. And, <coughs> you know, I don't believe in them buying into a situation that can't be maintained for life. And I, I don't want them to think that they can get on like that. I, I want them to realise that life is not simple and not easy. That said, I don't burden them with a lot about climate change. I just want them to be resilient to what's going to happen or what is happening as it is, you know, I mean, the, the Fridays for Future now has brought it into their faces, mm. which to me, I went from being very positive and transitioning, and, and this was brilliant, to very angry that it's the children that are now standing up and that we've got to a stage where we failed with the transition stuff and getting everybody on board and the cultural shift didn't happen. And now it's got to such a terrible situation that it's our children who are actually... So I was very annoyed and I'm still pretty angry I was fighting with someone today on social media <laughs> because mm. I, I took this, the stance of I'm not going to fight with deniers. Mm. And now it's at a critical stage where the deniers are the ones that are being most vocal. Well, they are in rural Ireland. I find it a lot different to urban Ireland. It's a lot easier to seem to be in denial. It's a lot easier. It's no. a lot easier to mm. be in denial, which to me makes me kind of angry. Mm. But my kids hopefully have a certain amount of resilience because I've been aware of what's going on. Mm. And how do you sustain all of that? I mean, you personally, I mean, because that's a lot of, that's a lot of heavy stuff that you just mentioned there. I mean, how do you, how do you manage yourself personally through all of that? 
I don't. Mm. <laughs> I don't know what you mean. You know, by manage, I hear all this all the time. You know, look after yourself. I have yeah. five kids. You know, there is no looking after yourself. And when you're in this situation, you're living day to day and yeah. you're also trying to wear, raise awareness. You're trying not to burden your kids. There's not an awful lot of room for mm. the fun that people talk about and the whole look after yourself business. Um, I wish there was, but it's just a case of crash and burn. Get up and do it again. But I don't actually crash and burn too much. Mm. And it's actually in the past year that that's happened because the Fridays for Future movement, I've been pretty positive up to then but now it's kind of like yeah I'm not too happy with what's going on and I wish it was moving a bit quicker. Mm, okay. John you, you said you had maybe equilibrium or you worked your way through burnout how did you do that? Probably by realizing that you know if I kept going at the way I was going at it and the mindset that I was that I'd have lost my family for example right and these are things that you kind of need right to put it mildly if you can't mind yourself you can't save anybody else. That's the kind of view that I came to understand. And also, I suppose we all have to forgive ourselves for, you know, what a shit job we're doing, myself included. Mm. I was this naive fool who thought if I could just explain things to people, things would change. And, you know, tried that for a while and nothing changed. Well, that's not true. Things got worse. Mm. And, <laughs> and, you know, you have to reconcile your own failure. And we live in an era of failure. Mm. So everything we do is just at what pace we're failing. So, you know, I suppose I was brought up to aim to be successful. The things that I understood as a kid or as a young adult were important, you know, building a business, building a career, making money, going on holidays. They all turned out to be, I suppose, a, a shimmer. And that's a kick in the teeth. Mm. It really is, because that's how I was brought up. And then you wake up someday and you realize that all that counts for, for next to nothing. So I guess... It's not quite answering your question, but I think it's about pacing yourself, about knowing that everything I do has been inadequate and could have been done better, but forgiving yourself for your own failures and even forgiving some of the people that I've been rowing with down the years and realizing the kind of paradigms that they're locked in as well, where you realize they just, they're seeing the world through a particular lens and I can be furious about this or I can be a little more, I suppose, stoic about it. And I'm kind of moving from fury to stoicism in my life and reconciling to reality. It doesn't mean I won't kick and scream and shout. I reserve the right to continue to be a pain in the ass for the foreseeable future. And you're succeeding, Thank you, Barry. <laughs> Never let you down. <laughs> but at the same time, you've got to, at some point, make peace with yourself mm. and even make peace with this shitty world and what we've done. Because we're going to have to forgive ourselves because I think a lot of my feelings have been rage, absolute rage. And I'm not sure. I just coming around to thinking, well, we are, to use the politician's line, we are where we are. And where do we go from here? Mm. The future isn't set completely, but just mostly. Mm. Teresa, your reaction yeah, to that? I, this, I, I, I was thinking... slightly different tone of... Well, what I was thinking... <clears throat> while after I spoke you know but I mean I think the way I keep going is through activism if it wasn't mm. for me being able to do activism I don't know what I how I would cope with it so I think that is probably you know people say about working and having fun to me the activism is what I do in my spare time mm. and I'm happy with that it'd be different if I wasn't happy with it but I, I agree with John we need to accept the, the world the way it is I mean it's a system and I'm a systems analyst so it's, it's a system we've evolved in. 
it's not going to change overnight. What's most frustrating for me is I used to be a civil servant, so I know the inside of the system that governs. And I find that very difficult to mm. portray that to other people, that this is not going to change quick enough unless you really, really force the change as people, because the system doesn't really change in government. I, I've watched it. I have no confidence unless we are on the streets and Extinction Rebellion and Fridays for Future forcing the change. I don't agree that the government or the civil service will change. Mm. Yeah, we're, we're at the we're at the nub, if you like, of the team. I think and of the conversation. Now, it would be interesting to throw this open to people because I mean, I think what you're both articulating is what it's like to live personally in a time of systemic breakdown. How people personally get through that time. So the the hope horizon is it's a transition to a new system which reboots ultimately, or the negative is the system just crashes and that's it. There's a very bleak prospect yeah. for quite some time. Either is a possibility. But one last question, uh, just your connection with other people. I mean, you're living in rural Ireland, Teresa, mm -hmm. so are you an oddball? I mean, how do you, what's that network? She is. Whoa! Yeah, but, <laughs> but, no, but are you, have you people around you? Are people, are they listening to you? Are they more open? Do you detect a change even the last five well, years? I mean, what's your sense of the mood I, overall? Very hard to get change in rural Ireland. Yeah. The Extinction Rebellion has helped. I am so jealous of Leo and having the support network at home because I don't have that support network at home. I don't even have it in my community as such. Like it's maybe 10 kilometers away. There's someone, mm. there's someone actually maybe five kilometers away, but like we're all busy in our own lives. So I used to have a much better support network in Port Leash, in Leash where we were closer in proximity, but it's very isolating. Mm. in Clare to be a climate activist, very much so. And <coughs> I am jealous of people who do have the support system. Mm. I, I'd, I'd love, if everybody wants to move to Lisdown Farna, <laughs> be delighted. You're, you're <laughs> Is Dublin any different or what do you think? Do you have a better network? Um, well, I'm out and about as well. So yeah. I kind of, you know, give talks and things here and there. And it's really interesting because it's sort of like I can take all my pain all my anxiety, all my angst, wrap it up into a ball and give it to you. <laughs> and it's so weird. I feel so much better. I see the room kind of the faces graying around me and they're feeling worse and I'm feeling better. It's like an energy transfer of all my negative energy and everybody goes out feeling worse and I leave feeling better. It's so weird. I'm, I'm actually not kidding. I come out of, of these talks feeling high as a kite and everyone around me is going, oh, that's right. I'm like, oh, shepherd, don't be so, cheer up for God's sakes. So this is weird. I'm probably a sick puppy. I accept that, right? But it's... It is, for me, it is cathartic to talk to people, to meet people. Mm. And as I said, I hope I'm not just in a Dublin bubble. Yeah. I'm out and about talking to people. And this year, I've, for the first time probably in a decade, I've opened up even a scintilla, a crumb of, sorry, I could almost say it, the H word, a little bit of hope. <laughs> because I think the school strike movement has been inspiring. Extinction Rebellion has been wonderful. And people are reacting in a way that I've never seen before. Now, is it commensurate with where we're going? No. But is it infinitely better than every other year that I've been involved in this shit show? Yes. So I choose mm. to take some hope from 2019 has been the best year in all the years that I've been involved in this, and I hope 2020 will be better. That was journalist and climate campaigner John Gibbons.
being interviewed by Mark Garavan, a FASTA trustee and sociology lecturer, along with Teresa O'Donoghue, an environmental activist who's currently running for election in Clare with the People Before Profit Party. The interview took place during the recent FASTA seminar on living well in the face of climate and ecological crises. A theme which was mentioned several times in the event was the need to help our children prepare for a very different kind of society. A society which can no longer base itself on continually increasing consumption. In our next podcast, we'll be exploring the idea of living well, a good life, but within our planetary means. The idea that enough is plenty, or as we might say in Irish, is lior gulior. Very many thanks to John Sharry, Morag Freel, Leontine Freel-Darrell, Mark Garavan, John Gibbons and Teresa O'Donoghue for a very stimulating and candid discussion. Special thanks to Owen Campbell for doing the recording of the event. Thanks also to David Somak of the European Health Futures Forum for his support and advice, and to Leisha Kelly for her music on the harp. Thank you.